Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's very special program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the club, and I'll be our moderator for today's program, honoring Lauren Dax and her colleagues at the Stephen D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. The Commonwealth Club has, of course, shifted from in-person programs to virtual events, and we're so grateful for the support of our viewers. We appreciate you considering a donation to the club, and if you wish to do so, please text the word DONATE to 415-329-4231 or visit the club's website at commonwealthclub.org. We also want to remind you today to submit questions for our guests via the chat room that's next to your screen, and I'll get to as many as possible later in the program. Today, I'm very honored to have a conversation with leaders of one of the Commonwealth Club's 2020 Distinguished Citizen Award honorees, which is the Stephen D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. This award is presented to the people and institutions who provide outstanding leadership in serving and enriching our Bay Area community. Today's program features Bechtel Foundation President Lauren Lori Dax and two of her colleagues at the foundation, Aaron Hiron and Joya Banerjee. As a grant-making organization, the foundation has long invested in preparing California's youth to contribute to the state's economy and communities, and in advancing management of California's water and land resources. The foundation is based in San Francisco. It was established in 1957 by Stephen D. Bechtel, Jr. as a reflection of his personal commitment to ensuring a prosperous California. To this day, Mr. Bechtel remains involved with the foundation as chair of its board, and his daughter, Lori Dax, serves as the president. In 2009, the foundation made a pivotal decision to spend down its assets in a defined period of time. The foundation will sunset at the end of this year, and we are so pleased to honor the foundation's myriad achievements. In addition to her work with the Bechtel Foundation, Lori Dax serves on the Advisory Council to the Public Policy Institute of California, on the Board of California's Water Policy Center, and on the Board of Directors of the Water Foundation. She has also served on the Board of Directors of the Land Trust Alliance and on the Advisory Council of Stanford's Woods Institute for the Environment. Ms. Dax has been an advisor or board member for many environmental, educational, and health organizations, including Stanford University, the Nature Conservancy of California, Children's Hospital and Research Center in Oakland, the Lawrence Hall of Science, and the Center for Underrepresented Students in the College of Engineering at the University of California, Berkeley. She's also a founder of the Lake School, a nonprofit preschool located in Oakland. Ms. Dax graduated from Stanford University with a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology, and she's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Joya Banerjee joined the Bechtel Foundation in 2009, and she oversees the Foundation's environment program. She works with the environment team to advance water management and land stewardship in California, and particularly focuses on integrated solutions, building field capacity, and developing new partnerships. Prior to joining the Foundation, Ms. Banerjee was an attorney at Latham & Watkins and worked for the City of New York, first with the Mayor's Office of Operations and later with the Economic Development Division of the Law Department. 
Currently, she serves on a range of advisory boards. She's a board member for the newly formed uh, California Water Data Consortium and San Francisco-based 826 Valencia. Ms. Banerjee graduated from the University of Southern California and received a Juris Doctor degree from Columbia Law School. Erin Hiron joined the Bechtel Foundation in 2012 and is the Associate Program Director for the Education Program. He leads the team's grant-making in education policy and advocacy, with an overall focus on supporting California's implementation of new math and science standards and on expanding civic learning, character development, and environmental literacy to improve the quality of student learning in and out of school. Before joining the foundation, Mr. Hiron served for six years as program officer at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, where he led grant-making for policy, advocacy, and systems building to advance early education and youth development programs. Prior to that, he was the development director for a state intermediary that improves access and quality of youth development programs in California. Mr. Hiron started his career at a community action agency in Nebraska, where he led the creation of the Youth Opportunities Center, a comprehensive education division for low-income youth and young adults. There, he co-developed a nationally recognized restorative justice program for youth in the juvenile justice system, launched a youth build program, and designed a regional workforce development system for adults. So welcome, Ms. Dax, Ms. Banerjee, and Mr. Hiron. We are so pleased to pay tribute to you and the work of one of California's and the nation's most highly regarded philanthropic organizations. Lori, thank you for the outstanding leadership of the foundation and you personally for our Bay Area community for over 50 years. We're going to talk about the many reasons you have received the club's Distinguished Citizen Award in our upcoming conversation, but I want to start our program by saying a heartfelt thank you from the club and from so many in the community who you've worked so hard to benefit. Congratulations on your award, which we'd love for you to show to the audience. Thank you. And once again, thank you and... Uh, uh, happy to have any comments, or we can go right into the uh, questions, which I have for you. Well, I have to say just a few comments, and that is how honored the foundation is to receive this award from the Commonwealth Club, an institution that we've supported over the years that is well-recognized nationally for the programs that it brings to the community. And um, I also would like to say you can tell from the resumes that Gloria shared with everyone how what an honor it has been to work all these years with such a great uh, program team. So thank you to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you to Gloria. And we look forward to having this conversation. Thank you. And I just want to say that the honor is for the foundation, for its staff and leaders, for Lori Dax, the entire enterprise that has contributed now for over a half century to the Bay Area. I also wanted to note, um, I was intrigued some years ago to look back in the early membership rosters of the Commonwealth Club, and there was one W.A. Bechtel over 100 years ago who was a member of the Commonwealth Club. So we appreciate the Bechtel family's long involvement with the club. Well, let's start out um, for, with the, the history of the foundation. Um, so 
your father uh, founded this in 1957. Lori, can you tell us a little bit about the legacy, the values uh, that your father instilled in the foundation? What guided the initial decisions about what areas to focus in philanthropically? Uh, and then talk to us a little bit about the decision to spend down the foundation. Certainly. As Gloria said, the foundation was started in 1957 by my father, and he did his own philanthropic support through the foundation for a number of years. And he'd always been interested in conservation and the environment, and also coming out of the corporate sector with uh, engineering and construction, that was something that he felt uh, a great passion and knowledge about. And he wanted to make sure that our children, our students, growing up would have access to quality education in the STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math fields. Um, his, his interest in the environment really came as somebody who spent a lot of time out of doors. He was a camper, a mountain hiker, a, and also a duck hunter. And um, that led him into realizing that we, California had lost over 95, 98% of its wetlands and so he started thinking about, okay, what do we do about that? Um, over the course of the years, um, we, I joined the foundation as a board member in the early 1990s and went to him uh, around 1998, I guess, and asked him if he would like, my children were growing and gone, and I was looking for an opportunity to really dig into philanthropy in a more serious way. So I talked to him and I said, can I help you with your, with your philanthropy? Um, had I known the, the scope of what I just offered, I probably would not have made that offer. At the time, he, it was a perpetual foundation. It was set up as a perpetual foundation. And really until the early 2000s, it was always considered to be that. I started, it's, a, it's a, currently a board of uh, five family members and four non-family members, but early on it was all family. And I started bringing in the next generation once I started working for my dad and um, thinking that, again, we would stay perpetual and there would be other family members who would continue to, to be engaged. However, as my father, who has great vision, big vision, big ideas, um, thought about it and realized that if we really wanted to address some of the inequities that he saw in education, and address what was happening to our natural resources, we really should consider spending considerably more than the 5% that's required of, of foundations. That led to further conversations about who would, who would continue to be engaged with the foundation. And we realized that um, the next generation, it was at a time in their lives when they were busy with family and their own careers and all that there, there wasn't a clear sort of throughput to that foundation, that, that next group of people. So we did start the conversation, serious conversation in 2008. We did a lot of research, talked to advisors, um, tried to learn from what we knew was out there in the field, which wasn't much. There wasn't a real cookbook or you know playbook as to how you go about spending down. But we made the decision, jumped in as is the way my father does things. He thinks big and then he says, okay, let's go do it. And we made the decision in 2009. The values of the foundation, there are four important primary values and they are integrity, 
excellence, optimism, and respect. And I think those reflected who my father was and has permeated all through our work and through the way the staff thinks about their work. Integrity means doing things of the highest standard of honesty and transparency, um, being responsible stewards of relationships and resources, excellence. Um, that was always something that was very important to my father. Don't do it unless you're going to do it really well. And I can tell you growing up in a family like that, that there were challenges. Optimism, you know, if, if not for philanthropy, who believes in the future? Who has faith that we can, can address some of these really challenging issues? And respect was something that, again, whether it was respect for our grantees, respect for staff um, between and amongst us, respect for other funders, respect for the field, it was just something that was part of our DNA. I would also say that the, the culture in the foundation sort of took on my dad's style and his vision of thinking big. I mean, if you think about some of the major construction programs that the Bechtel Group has done from the tunnel under the English Channel to the Hoover Dam way back when, um, you know, you have to think big and you have to want to solve problems and go at it with energy and be productive and be responsible and always in the back of your mind thinking about continuous improvement. So that was my dad and that has come through through to the foundation. And we've been very fortunate in the, the um, people that we've hired over the years that they've come with that kind of commitment and intellect and energy um, to, to go about this. So the decision to spend down was really based on wanting to tackle big, complicated issues. Um, public education is one, and, and Aaron can speak to that in a moment. California water, I, 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 it's probably one of the most complicated and divisive issues uh, in, this, in the history of this state. Um, so think big, go out it, delegate, trust the people that you're working with, and both in terms of my being able to step back and trust our, our, our staff, but also trust the grantees in the field. They're the ones that are doing the work. They know the issues and we're there to partner alongside them. So I think I've covered most of it, but if you, you want to drill down on any of it, let me know. We'll get into the, the details, I know. Um, well, two of the most important uh, programs at the foundation are education and uh, the environment. And we're uh, delighted to have with us uh, principals in those areas for the foundation. Uh, Aaron and Joya, do you want to tell us a little bit about the foundation's work in those in your two areas and uh, its status now as you're starting to uh, close the doors? Well, sure. Where do you want to start? Education or environment? Why don't we start with you? Okay. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for asking. And thanks to you for, for this honor. And thanks to Lori and Mr. Bechtel for uh, an incredible uh, investment into California, to kids, the environment. Um, so I think that Lori's opening really shared a lot uh, 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 about what Mr. Bechtel wanted us to do in education. First, to take an optimistic frame, a belief that all kids can learn. All kids uh, have brains of scientists and engineers. They're born with it. Is there something we can do for them in education that helps them maximize that potential? Uh, and our thought was STEM education, 
thinking about the whole child, or what we call character or social-emotional development, were, were good things for kids to have to help them progress to adulthood and be successful. Uh, STEM uh, is, is obviously a, uh, something we all know about intellectually, STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math. But how, if you wanted all kids in California, and we have uh, over 6 million students here, how would you reach all of them? And our, and our thought was through the public school system, uh, still, you know, something as a part of our commonwealth, an investment in public schools. And how would we do that? Well, they already needed to teach math and science. But what we found the gap to be was there wasn't necessarily um, uh, robust support for teachers to improve how they taught math or improve how they taught science or anything new, anything new subject wise. Uh, you know, people are not like our phones where you can just push a button, get an update, and they know new things. We, we have a whole process uh, as adults to learn. Um, and the public school system, the state, the federal government, wasn't necessarily uh, dropping um, a, a lot of money to help uh, teachers master new skills. And that's, you know, that's all a part of public prudence. So our thought was, can we help teachers be inspired by STEM, gain the skills and competence to create STEM classrooms? And can we do that at scale? I should just note here that um, the, the foundation's investment has been huge, one of the largest uh, in history for Spend Down Foundation and for just in, in education generally. But we taxpayers uh, spend even more on education, right? It's an $80 billion system. So the responsibility to think about how a lot of money, millions, but can impact a, a, a exponentially larger system in the billions takes a lot of careful thought. Um, and responsibility because damage can be done. And Lori talked a little bit about that. You can start new things and walk away with them. So we had to, we had to thread the needle between trying to reach all teachers, but in a way that would be in partnership with the state and with public schools, doing it with them, not to them, and building with an, with an eye towards the long term. And that's, so that's one part that's a, of the STEM strategy. We also thought a little bit about how to prepare teachers in STEM. And we can talk a little more about the elements of that, but but it's essentially uh, helping the people who uh, support our adults, uh, whether they're uh, faculty in higher ed or they are professional development experts or context experts. How do we help them get to scale? We could talk a little bit more about that. But an important complement to the STEM strategy was one in character uh, and character development. And again, because Mr. Bechtel is a big thinker, he was just saying all youth. Uh, or how do we reach as many as we can? And, and our team turned to the nation's largest youth-serving providers, the YMCAs, the Boys and Girls Clubs, the, the Boy Scouts, Girls Inc., uh, 13 and all, and thought, how do we help them uh, reach kids with more positive whole-child character-building um, experiences? Character can, uh, can be tricky, and we've tried this as a country before. There was a great movement in the 90s. There have been previous movements. Uh, and I think we brought something a little bit new to that conversation with the help of the National Academies of Science and others to really get at what is character. And uh, I wish I could share that definition with you, but it's many, many things. And, and I won't go into all of it. We have a wonderful resource for it. I'll just say this. It does feel as if character is about self-discovery for youth. Can youth discover in themselves what's important for them to do? in this world and what they want to do about it. And the only way you can have a young person come to those kinds of insights is to give them experiences and to give them adults that care about them 
and can help them uh, think about uh, what they want to do uh, with, with their life and, and what they want to do with their character. So it's, it's really an expression of integrity, expression of what of their own values rather than taking them here are the 10 things you need to know how to do and you should have all 10 of these. Self-discovery is what I'll share there. So we've worked with those 13 organizations. Uh, on any given week, they reach as many as half of the country's kids. And the notion of that strategy was just to help those programs do a better job. We let them define character for their own organization and, and propose to the foundation what it was they thought would help uh, young people do better. And that is the strategy. So there's more to say about it, but I'll, I'll stop with that overview and pass it to Joya. Thank you, Aaron. And yes, please, Joya. In the environment area, strategy, priorities, uh, and the wind down a bit too. Sure, sure. And um, thank you. I want to echo Aaron's thanks and Lori's um, to my gratitude to the Commonwealth Club and for this award. It's um, it. it, it it really means a lot, and and I'm very appreciative for all the work that the Commonwealth Club does. I also want to add a note of thanks to Aaron, um, it, as someone who spent a lot of my time on the environment side of the foundation's house. I always really enjoy getting to hear about the work that the education programs um, been doing for the past decade, and and as a as a parent of two small kids, one who is behind the door, uh, you know, on his on his own Zoom call right now, I've I've never been more appreciative of uh, the work of our teachers, and so uh, thank you, Aaron, for 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 that summary. And um, so, you know, Lori said a little bit about some of the background in the environment program, really founded in Mr. Bechtel's appreciation and um, and love for the outdoors, and and since the founding of the foundation. Um, the foundation has envisioned a California that manages its water and land to support a resilient environment and healthy communities. And we believe that that vision is possible. And, and that's sort of that optimism that, that Lori mentioned, um, but it's not inevitable. And so in 2009, when the foundation decided to spend down and to really embark on, on, on quite an incredible adventure, uh, the environment program took that vision and we organized our work around three really interdependent and complementary grant portfolios and strategies. One was really focused on land. Uh, and this portfolio really focused on enhancing conservation of both our protected lands, so these are our parks and our land trusts, but also on private land, so thinking about um, farmland in the Central Valley and, and on the coast. For water, that portfolio really was designed uh, to ensure that California's policies and practice meet the water needs of people and of nature by addressing some of the major concerns we have around floods, droughts, water quality, and also the way we pay for water and finance and finance water infrastructure. And then finally, because in many, in many respects, informed by the fact that we knew we were going away and we had this, this sort of time horizon that was very defined, um, we really focused on a capacity portfolio that spanned water and land and really supported leaders, organizations, and fields to do their best work, both in the very current moment, but also over the long term, well beyond the timeline of this foundation. And so the decade of work that followed when we set out with, with sort of this, this spend down, um, the spend down goal, and, and like Laura said, there wasn't really a, a roadmap <laughs> or a cookbook, um, but we, we definitely had some core tenets that, that guided sort of our own compass in the work. And one is that everything we did was anchored in input from the field. We were in constant conversation with grantees, with, with policymakers, with practitioners, 
with other funders. Uh, and we were very intentionally influenced by the external context, by the, the sort of predictably unpredictable nature of our droughts, our wildfires, our floods, uh, and now pandemics. And so as a result of that, um, that, that sort of intentional adaptation to the external context, we've seen some really, um, some really great gains in the spaces of water and land. We've seen new policy frameworks emerge that are, are having um, quite profound impacts on, on water and land man management across the state. We've seen new public funding and new private funding from other philanthropies. Um, and also we're seeing new norms emerge around how we collaborate and how we are in relationship with um, with partners that maybe aren't on the same side of an issue, but still need to come together to collaborate and find and broker solutions. And you know, the, the question of sort of here we are with, I don't know, Lori, like 30 days <laughs> left or sort of uh, at, the, at, at the very end and, you know, look ahead and, and there's more to be done to be sure. You know, and there always will be. Um, but I think the foundation has been able to make a meaningful contribution to these issues. And I think of a, a board member, um, one of our board members, Bob Peck, who early on in this mendown said, we're pushing a boulder up a hill and you either want to get it to a plateau or get a bunch of people with you pushing that boulder and ideally both. And I think we've, we've, we've done that in a couple of respects. I'll stop there. Thank you, Joya. Well, let's let me jump back to Lori to talk about the overall thinking about spending down. I mean, some foundations go on generation after generation, Ford, Rockefeller, Hewlett, Packard, etc. But it's a unique decision to decide to spend down. What what motivated that? Uh, what were the considerations you had in in thinking about whether to continue or to sunset? I think the main thing that, that sort of helped us come to that decision was the idea that we were working in very complicated fields. And in order to see uh, progress made to have some impact, we were going to have to invest, be much more focused and invest significant uh, more funds to, to um, realize some gains. I think there was also the issue of each of us in the next generation, since this is a family foundation, we all had our own foundations. And my father was one who thought this was, this was the areas that he was interested in. And those of us in the next generation may have very different interests and they should pursue those. So it was really, um, I think, a combination of really big vision thinking about very complicated issues and realizing that we were going to have to get focused and very intentional in what we were going to do. Um, we had to build our staff, unlike some foundations that once they make the decision to spend down, they start letting staff go. When we made the decision in 2009, I think we had a staff of about nine and we reached a, a, at our highest point, a staff of about 37. Um, the other thing that was happening, which was complicated, first of all, this is complicated work. <laughs> For anybody who's listening who wants to think about spending down, um, it's to do it well, to do philanthropy well is complicated. It's important. You have to be very thoughtful about it. Um, but to do a spend down, you, you all of a sudden there's an urgency, there's a focus, and there's um, the, the urgency creates timelines that you have to address. And you thought you start thinking about who who can 
absorb much larger gifts. We used to do sort of fifty, sixty thousand dollar grants, and we got to the point where we were doing multi million dollar grants. We were also um, doing um, some of the initiatives that that Aaron spoke to. Our math in common is around the Common Core standards in math. That's a seven plus year initiative. Our work with teachers in the CSU system is is a seven or eight year and and cross um, larger systems. So I think the complexity, the um, desire to see um, real success, real impact were the major reasons that we decided to do the spend down. I will say that I don't think there's a right or wrong. I don't think everybody should spend down. I don't think everyone should stay perpetual, but it does create a hunger and an urgency and a, and a creativity to go through a spend down that that is quite exhilarating and very challenging. So I think I think those are sort of the main main reasons. We really were looking for systems change, and we moved from doing direct service where we would fund a given land trust or a given YMCA or a Boy Scout troop um, to looking at a much higher level. And at a higher level, we were looking for organizations that could absorb, effectively absorb and use the kind of funds that we had available to us. So I recall when a wonderful philanthropist in the Bay Area, Richard Goldman, wrote 20 years ago or so a an article which set the philanthropic community on its heels a little bit saying, spend your money. The problems are urgent. Spend it now. Don't keep it for future generations and so on. And so um, you're very much in that spirit. Um, What, so any other unique challenges of spending down? I mean, you've given people, uh, grantees and others, a window of about 10 years or so. Uh, to prepare for the foundation shutting down. Any other uh, considerations, uh, how you've dealt with the grantee community? Sure. Well, I will confess one of one of the, <laughs> we learned as we went, let me tell you that as a starter, there, this was just a constant learning uh, experience. When we made the decision in 2009 to spend down, we had our last date of, of when we would shut down of 2016. And so in 2009, we sent out letters to all of our grantees, and there were about 600 at that point, sort of saying, okay, there's an end game here, and it's 2016. And we would like to make sure that we don't, no one reaches some sort of funding cliff. So we're going to continue to do multiple year grants, but they were, you know, two to three years, and they weren't big initiatives. Um, And then one of the challenges, a fortunate opportunity, but a challenge was that my parents continued to contribute to the foundation from their wealth really up through two years ago. And we would get contributions into the foundation at the end of each year. So we never knew, we didn't, we didn't have an asset or a portfolio that says there's $400 million to spend. Um, It is, this is what you're getting this year to add to the corpus. And so there was just a constant moving target. So we had a great finance team and a great investment committee that sort of helped us address those kinds of things. But um, we realized that to do this well was going to take a lot more time and more staff. So we started, as I said earlier, building the staff and really stepping back, looking at the 26, 29 areas that we were funding in and saying, okay, 
we're going to make bigger investments in in a much more targeted way. And they're going to be, you know, six, eight, 10 year investments. Um, and I think those were some of the some of the things that we really had to consider and a challenge to address as we went forward. Um, again, I, I, I don't I'm not disparaging in any way perpetual foundations. I'm just saying that for us. And for the kinds of issues that we wanted to have an impact. And as you said yourself, Gloria, the issues are in front of us now. If you think specifically about conservation and natural resources, if we don't conserve what we have, there won't be a future to conserve 50 years from now or a much less of a future. Let's put it that way. And if we don't educate our children well and get them prepared for what they need to do to lead really productive lives, we're, we're not doing what we need to do both ethically and in terms of just the common good. So making that decision to go all in, really big goals, big vision, big effort was again, it was part of the DNA of my dad as well. So he, he kind of carried us along um, with that thinking, but also he was great at sort of saying, here are the areas that I wanna work in, now you go solve the problem. And so I was fortunate to be able to attract and retain quality staff. And um, I will say with, with some pride, but also with some humility, I think we've done a really good job. Thank you. And I would agree. Joya, turning to the environment then, so what have you had the opportunity to do with this larger amount of funds available on the priority problems? And I'd like to know too, so much of our conversation today is about climate change. How have the foundation's environment priorities affected or been uh, meaningful in the climate change uh, battle that we're in? Great. Uh, thank you for that question. And, um, and you're, you know, the foundation does not have, I, I listed sort of our environment program, water, land capacity. And, and so it may seem like a, a glaring omission that climate change is not, is not in there. We don't have a, a formal climate change portfolio. Um, but we very much approach our work on water and land management and land management through the lens of climate change. Um, you know, Californians are facing increased water scarcity, declining water quality, concerns about affordability, um, flood risk, threats of wildfire, and and of course the the deteriorating, deteriorating health of our ecosystems, as Lori mentioned. And and these are some of our great challenges as a state, and they live at the intersection of water, land, climate, and equity. And so, I think through our our work, what we, what I'm um, I'm proud of is that we've we've tried to account for those intersections in order to be able to make any meaningful impact. Um, we've taken a, f a few different approaches. One that I'm very proud to name is supporting dialogue, actually, to 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 explore intersections, including that of Climate One here at the Commonwealth Club. We were very thrilled to be able to support um, a, a multi-part series exploring the connections between water and climate. Um, also, many of the policy and practice work that we supported um, is inherently very responsive to the threats of, of climate change. Um, you know, we know that climate change is just is creating tremendous variability. Um, and so for conservation, it requires that we move from managing landscapes that are fixed and sort of a fixed unit of, of an acre or, or an acre of habitat to a much more dynamic paradigm 
And so we've been supporting over the years um, a range of new conservation approaches that actually respond to some of this variability and account for climate. Uh, and for water, you know, the, the, our water system in California was built for variability, both in, in space and time. Uh, but this is the climate is bringing a whole new level of stressors. And, and so we need to consider the legal, institutional, cultural and, and sort of physical systems that can that, that really need to adapt to the more intense droughts and floods that we'll see as a result of climate. And there we've, we've supported a range of, of projects that are, are really attempting to answer those questions. Um, you know, I think the, the other part that I would name that both hits on the climate question, but also sort of what have we been able to do? And, and um, we haven't been able to do, we don't do anything alone. And I think that's something that the spend down really um, Lori mentioned sort of the urgency and creativity. We had to get really creative about partnerships. And so one of the things that we did with, with respect to water is we partnered with, with five community foundations across California. So based in Los Angeles, the Central Valley, San Diego, San Francisco, and, and Silicon Valley, um, and, and came up with, with a, a plan for them to work on water in their individual and collective capacity, but not as something separate, not as a new program area or something different, but rather how do we, how can these local anchors, really, these incredible intermediary organizations, how can they start to weave water into their already established programs around health, economic growth, or climate? So this is just one of the partnerships that we we were able to explore that I don't think would have been possible but for the spend down. You know, again, it was a, it was a, it was a little bit of a different model that I don't know that we would have considered if we were going to exist in perpetuity. Um, but it made us think really creatively about who can we partner with to get work done more quickly now, but also in a way that it endures. And, and so looking at partners like community foundations was a great strategy. Aaron, same question really in the education field. What have you been able to do with the greater resources available? What have the strategies, priorities been in the education field? I think that it, this to, to answer this, I have to go back to that, that idea of, of foundations, their goals in education. How much should they do? What should the outcomes be? Um, one of the things we grappled with in this, on the strategy side was was how to responsibly use large grant dollars. Um, I'm sure every grant seeker who's listening to this has experienced a foundation setting a goal and then seeing their, their peers in the community change what they're doing to try to fit into that goal. And so this is a fundamental flaw of philanthropy. How do we get the big ideas without allowing the goals of the foundation to interfere with the, the good thinking? And the only way we've discovered to do that is relationships and, and partnerships. So the foundation's Investments in STEM education and character could have led to asking policymakers at every level to prioritize it. But this was really a capacity building strategy that wanted to partner with state leaders, with education leaders and researchers, because we were thinking about sustainability from the start. So uh, to, to now answer the question, you know, our first approach was to go to, you know, the best thinkers that we could find, the state leaders the State Board of Education, the Governor's uh, Office, the Department of Education, and really find out what their priorities are. Uh, then think object as objectively as we could, where does STEM fit into this? So during our span of time during with this grant making 
the state adopted new standards in math and, and science, uh, the Common Core standards, which at the time were notorious in some states, and the Next Generation Science standards. Uh, and a lot of great thinking went into this. Uh, it was going to be hard for teachers to master them, but when they did, they would really be uh, creating a learning environment that ma matched what science knew about learning and development. But to get from here to there, for, from a teacher who knew nothing of Common Core to one that can master it in a way that was sustainable and systemic and at scale, no foundation could do that uh, uh, by themselves. Some have tried and they have not done it. Uh, so we went to, uh, as I mentioned, to, to policy uh, uh, leaders. But I think another dimension to this is the foundation started investing during an era of ed reform when it was thought that maybe market-based solutions can apply, or maybe this is a, an issue in education about human capital. We're just getting the wrong people to be teachers. The foundation didn't buy in into any of that because that's not what our partners at the state were saying. Uh, that's not what the researchers were saying. What they were saying is we need a coherent, publicly supported system that can take what we know about good teaching and learning and get it to teachers all over the state. And that's essentially what we endeavored to do. So some of our largest grants look much different than any grants I've seen from other education foundations because we were partnering with the uh, California Teachers Association, the largest teachers union in the country, and looking to their leaders to really figure out what's going to help their network of teachers. And they created something magnificent. We went to something called uh, the County Offices of Education, which, which is a very jargony uh, part of the state system between districts and the state. And we help strengthen their ability to support math and science. Uh, and there are, other, there are other such projects. So we really had to be responsible and, and talk to stakeholders to think about where they were headed, try to align grant making more than that, and then still challenge those thinkers to think a little bit beyond the uh, outside the box. Um, on the character side, again, it's easiest to look at this through the, a lens of, of, of capacity building. Uh, there are dozens of federal funding streams for expanded learning. There are dozens of them in any state, in any city. Parents are paying for it. And, and all of those funding streams have priorities for the programs. But when you boil it down, you know, what does it take for a, an, an enrichment experience to help uh, create breakthrough response for a, a child? What research was telling us was it was positive youth development. It was adult youth relationships. And there are a lot of intentional things that youth workers can do to make their uh, after school or uh, in nature experience or mentoring experience uh, really have a positive impact. Um, so in addition to partnering with 13 of the largest youth serving organizations in the country, we tried to surround them, to swaddle them with the best thinking about how to influence adult practice. So that included looking at the Forum for Youth Investment, which has been a leader long, for a long time on positive youth development, and how to do that, and the After School Alliance and others. Um, and so both the STEM and character strategy then to look very similar because you're creating systems that you think can, can sustain and that can draw from research about what adults ought to be doing with kids. Um, the last thing I'll just say about this is we did have some policy advocacy work in this, in this scenario. It would have been possible to create a very muscular campaign-like strategy from the foundation perspective to move policy through policy windows but that's not the Bechtel Jr. Foundation way. This is about lifting up leaders. What do they want to achieve? How do we create it? And one thing we discovered, and I'll just end on this, and I'm sure it's the same on the environment, is that, you know, in the education system, everybody wants to do the right thing. They're often left doing something less because of fiscal constraints, political constraints, 
stakeholder constraints, but everybody wants to do the right thing, including policymakers. What we found is when they have to make decisions, often they don't have all the information or solutions that they need to make the best decision. So they just sort of do what they can with what they have. So our advocacy strategy uh, on both sides, character and STEM, was really to try to bridge that gap between practice, research, policy, and systems. Each one lives separately, and they have separate influencers and stakeholders. And so we tried to bridge across. I think we were successful in doing that. We helped uh, create the Learning Policy Institute in California, which does a great job with that. As I mentioned, we work with the counties and the teachers unions and other advocacy groups. We try to promote that idea of getting beyond just a policy win, because that doesn't actually do it, towards really thinking through the line, research policy systems, all the way down to where youth and adults meet. So we're in a time at the moment with the pandemic that often strikes me uh, as being heavily uh, STEM understanding based. That is, we have uh, science is the basis for solutions to this problem. Scientific understanding is important for public understanding. So in the current context, how have the foundation's education programs contributed uh, to our capacity to handle this and any future crises where science really is a core basis for both understanding it and solving the, the problem. Well, I'll, I'm going to turn this back to both Joya and, and Aaron on this, because I think science uh, is the basis of all the decisions that we're trying to make, whether it's around conservation, water, education, it's really getting out of the realm of sort of being judgmental and partisan and sort of saying, what do the facts lead you to want to take on and do it in a thoughtful and methodical way. And I would also say, you know, coming again from with, with a father who is an engineer, it's sort of looking at systems and sort of saying, where, what, where, what's the intersection there? So it's, it's all, it's, it's both systems, it's context, but it's based in science and, and not around sort of the political winds that could blow you any number of which ways. But do you, either of you want to, Joya or Aaron, want to talk specifically about, I mean, science, is, as, as we've said, it's been a huge part of what we funded over the years in, in, for young children. Well, Lori, I, I think it, I guess it shouldn't surprise us that the uh, barriers between STEM and civic education or character uh, and even the environment are starting to push in on each other a little bit. Those areas are starting to blur. Um, I really think that, you know, the next decade has to be a decade of STEM education, uh, starting with our STEM teach uh, teachers who all had to become STEM teachers during this pandemic and, and often on their own. So it's, it's a time to recognize that, that, that uh, the skills that you can gain in STEM uh, and, there, and there are deep skills here, well-researched and documented, that help you use data and see patterns and think across systems, um, have everything to do with what you're going to do in your civic life as well. Uh, but, you know, there's so many things that can be improved in education. It's hard for policymakers and education leaders to tackle them all at once. So we, we, we need our, our, our political leaders to, to think a little bit uh, more ambitiously about how to make some changes uh, and to do it in a way that can be sustained uh, and to, in the direction of STEM. Yeah. And, you know, from the environment perspective, this 
the importance of science and of data to inform decision making, as 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 Laurie said, is is key, and it's built into actually some of the very beginnings of our work was. Um, even as we were trying to figure out exactly what strategies to pursue is, well, let's start funding some of the knowledge creation. And to Aaron's point in a very similar way, how do we not just leave, knowledge can stay in silos very often. And so how do you accelerate the transfer of knowledge between policy practice um, and the research community? And so a lot of our work has been focused at at, at building that community and building that dialogue across, across and, and and I think in a way that can actually undergird um, policy and practice and make, and make it stronger. I think, you know, as I think about the, there's so much that's unprecedented this year, right, with the pandemic and with data and the need for science. Um, and yet I, there are some things that, are, that remind me a lot of when we were at the peak of the drought uh, from the environment program where um, it becomes essential that we are all watching the same movie. Right. If everyone has different data, different facts, different, it, it becomes very, very challenging, if not impossible, to get to solutions. And so oftentimes, though, we haven't created that foundation of are we all operating from the same, you know, we, we may have different interpretations of that movie. We may have different, you know, uh, uh, a, a different reaction to that movie. But are we all watching the same the same movie? And I think that was for the a lot of the work that the foundation has supported very much informed by the peak of our drought has been let's really invest in the data and information systems and the community of people. Um, and what we found in, in, in doing that is not only does it help to inform decision-making, but it can actually be a, a really wonderful strategy to build trust across different um, stakeholders across, you know, state to local uh, decision makers, and so, in many ways, I think of our the work that we funded around around science and data in the environment program. I, I would almost rebrand it as a trust building strategy because that has been one of the wonderful um, wonderful outcomes that we've seen because of that work. And I, I, I will also add that I think Joya and Aaron both touched on it. it you know, political will public will to see change has to be created and it has to be based on a common understanding. So whether it's watching the same movie or looking at the same facts that are based on, you know, on real research and hard science is really critical. And then you have the opportunity or you have the best opportunity, the best chance to really affect change. In throughout the foundation's uh, time, what conclusions have you drawn about who the most effective grantees or organizations are? What are the qualities uh, for, for your most successful grants the, to the most effective organizations? That is a great question. <laughs> I'll, I'll give a first shot at it and then again turn to see if Joya and Aaron want to add. I think for me personally, when I think about you know, what's, what's the best test for whether something is going to be successful, it really lands on what's the leadership of that organization like? You know, is this someone who is thinking holistically, thinking in an integrative and inclusive approach to an issue? Um, do they understand their field? Do they understand the actual the infrastructure of their organization such that they're not 
getting themselves sort of out on a limb financially? Are they connected to other players, either within the field or other funders, so that you build a community that can sort of move things along? And then I think the other thing is to really be honest about the role that that organization plays. I think often or not, some foundations and some organizations think they have all the answers and they can sort of lay it out on other people or other organizations or the field. And I think that is really a debilitating way to think about the work that needs to be done. So it's, it's as I said, it's people who, are, who, who think holistically, who thinks of, think about systems. Um, you know, when we, when we want to make an investment, we look at both the leadership of a given organization. We look at the organization, what, where it plays in the field. And then we look at the field. And context for this work and context for the people who are doing the work, both at the foundation level, but more importantly, at the, at the ground level, the people that have boots on the ground, are what we look for to say, okay, is this going to be a good investment? And the investment is both uh, an intellectual capital as well as financial. Our program teams spend an incredible amount of time being thought partners, and that only can happen after a long period of building trust because there's such a disparity, again, between the funder who sits there with the check account and the organization that's needing the money to do the work. And so it's being able to build the kind of relationship where the organization and its leadership, its program people will come and say, well, we thought we could do this, but that's not happening. So what do we do about it? And it's problem solving together. And one of the benefits of being at the foundation level is that we see a lot of different models. As as Aaron was saying, our character work, 13 different organizations had 13 different strategies, 13 different things that they wanted to do. So we're, we're not sitting up here saying, okay, this is what you need to do. We're saying, what do you think you need to do? And in some cases, really getting in and helping them figure out what it is that they want to do, and then supporting them over a number of years to come to that realization. So it's, it's great leaders, it's strong organizations, and it's context in the field to get the work done. And in our case, to get enough done within a period of time that, that you know, as, as Joya said, we got the boulder up to at least a plateau, and we've worked hard to bring funders in behind us um, to help carry that to the next step. And I don't know if there's time or if Joya and Aaron want to add on. There's time, and I'd love to have an example from each of you of in your area. What what do you call out as a really effective grant and why? That's having to pick your favorite child. I'm not sure that that's fair, Gloria. But anyway, we'll give it a try. We'll give it a try. Yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll take a maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll shift away from favorite organization because again that that is like picking your favorite child. But rather, what are the qualities of an effective grant and and with any organization? And and I think some of the things again very much influenced by our spend down that I think. Or, even if they're influenced by the spend down, I think um, can be implemented across any model of philanthropy is shifting to multi-year grants, right? It, it sort of it changes the relationship with the organization when you are saying you want to work on hard things and we are going to f- support you in a way to, in a long-term way to, to address some of those. Um, it gets the funder and the grantee out of this transactional 
nature where the funder holds the power and the purse. And, it, and, and so I think I would love to see more and more funders shifting to multi-year grants because I do think it just changes the relationship between funders and their grantees. I think the other piece of what makes a good, in, in a similar spirit is um, who's making decisions. And when you, when you think about um, a funder holding the purse strings, right, on an annual basis, you're, it, it, it's still kind of keeping a lot of control. Um, I'd say some of the most successful grants that we've done have been where we have explicitly and deliberately let go of control and focus on governance, on advisory councils and other structures that actually set the agenda for an organization rather than a single funder setting the agenda. So um, when I think through some of the, the most successful grants, it's I think in some ways it's a function of the way that we granted to them rather than in addition to some of the the characteristics that Lori named. Yeah, I'll just I'll just offer that I think from the original question, I, the chances are there there are no bad grantees, but there are bad grants. When the expectations of the grant seeker and the grant maker don't match, you're thinking, well, that's a bad grantee. It was probably a bad grant, and we have a lot of that. Um, for us on the on the uh, education side, we worked with organizations like the Advancement Project and Children Now and Education Trust West and Learning Policy Institute. People with uh, benches infinitely smarter than we could ever be, be about a myriad of education issues. And so I think the the thing is, don't try to be smarter than your smartest grantees. Let get out of the way. Your job is to support them. I always like the image of of a marathon where you see all the people sweating and struggling to get to the finish line. And then there are those nice people on the side with oranges and glasses of water. That's what a foundation ought to be. We're not running the race, but we got to cheer for them. We're, we're sustaining them. We're doing all we can. Their victory is ours, but we have to get behind them. In terms of just an, a characteristic of a, of a high-performing grantee, it's clarity of vision of what the most vulnerable youth need and what it will take to get there. This is a generational challenge whether it's STEM, addressing racial inequity in our schools. So the, and, and we're not going to get it, or, nor are we going to be able to measure it year by year. But what we can do, because grant making is about putting money in the right hands, the grant does nothing by itself, is get behind those organizations that have the real, in their soul, commitment uh, to what the least of us ha uh, need, right? And those who have been historically marginalized. And if they have that, and we get behind them, they get more influence, more power. They're able to advance an agenda that's just going to be better for the state. Uh, I'll just end with this last part, Education Trust West, uh, an amazing resource here. Uh, while we've supported it, and, and I'm not trying to spread any tea here, you know, they've gone through three executive directors, each one brilliant. When, when we talked to them in 2012, they said STEM education, but uh, that's not really an equity issue, Aaron. Like that's for gifted and talented kids. And I said, well, we want it for all kids. Can you help us think about how to do that? And they studied it. They went to schools. They looked at how science learning helps with language development, what the language demands on are for math for English learners, and, and, and highlighted the practices. The organization itself, if you looked at some of the factors like different EDs, you might think, well, they, they're not going to be as thriving. In fact, uh, they have not only thrived, they've made the case for STEM as an equity issue. And so I think if there are grant makers on here, you've got to stick with organizations, especially those that have that clear vision of what it takes for, for uh, our students who have, need the most to have the most.
So we're winding towards the end of our program, but I have a couple more questions. Uh, the first is for each one of you, uh, what does the future hold? A member of our audience actually asked, uh, how has your work at the foundation influenced each of your plans for when the foundation sunsets? But I'd love to know how you're each going to carry on uh, what, after the next 30 days. I, I, I'll jump in and I'll say I'm going to take some time just to relax and uh, replenish. Um, this has been a, a challenge from day one. And the last, I'd say, two or three years have been particularly um, challenging and demanding of time and energy and bandwidth. So just a little bit of time to set, set back and reflect. I have my own foundation that I have been very neglectful of. And so I, one of the things that I've learned is that I'm going to also spend down my foundation um, and pass through my personal wealth through that. And if you'd asked me years ago about um, water and, um, you know, I would have said, well, it's important, I get it. But I think probably my focus is going to be on water and climate. So spending down, being effective in the way you do your philanthropy and the focused areas, most likely of uh, the intersection of water and climate. Um, and then I've got 11 grandkids and I'm going to spend a whole lot of time with them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that sounds like the most fun of all. It's a full, it's a full book of work. Believe me. Sure is. Uh, Joya, Aaron, your future plans. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I know that when the clock turns, I will miss the foundation dearly and my colleagues and, and both at the foundation and, and within our network. But um, I'm really fortunate that I'm going to get to continue to work on um, a set of projects that are really designed to help the water sector recover stronger in this moment and, and to really respond to some of the, um, the, the really tough challenges that we face as a result of, of, of everything we've been seeing in 2020 um, and that build and restore trust with, with the public. So I'm, I'm still finalizing the details on all of those, but, um, but I'm really excited to be able to continue to work on these issues, even if from a different platform. Well, and I'll, and I'll just add, because there's a lot of pressure, right, Joy? I mean, Lori, for every year, she tells us, we're not really going away. The staff are going to continue this work. So there's a lot of pressure on us to keep persisting to try to make an impact. And, uh, and, and we're all very fortunate because the foundation invested in all of us to, to do that and to continue. You know, there's, there's so much to do. And um, there's so many reasons to be optimistic, but there's so much to do in education in California. And there are the seeds of just, you know, real change here. And we have leaders who want it. And so I, I've imagined myself just trying to find a, a way to be, a, to be of help. Um, you know, one of our great advantages in California, we have a huge, uh, huge population of, of students who have a different language than English at home, sometimes more than one. We, are, we can be the first polyglot society, which is, is just going to be perfect for uh, a STEM education. And so to bring that about, um, you know, we'll have to find a shovel and figure out where to start digging. And that's my plan. I just, before the last question, I just want to add one observation. So I first became aware of the Bechtel Foundation's philanthropy after I was finishing a tour uh, of service in Washington and I was coming back to sit at Stanford for a while until I decided what the next thing was. 
And my friend Chip Blacker told me about this project of the Bechtel, new Bechtel Center at Stanford, which is where I ended up do, being involved in a lot of activities over the next uh, the next years. And it, the Bechtel Foundation, in addition to these wonderful programs that you've been talking about, has been so terrific uh, around the Bay Area at creating infrastructure, environments, buildings, uh, which I think the foundation, due to the the Bechtel family's understanding of the importance of the built environment, uh, almost uniquely among foundations, has been very committed to helping create places where important work can take place and important thought can go on. So I just wanted to note that in addition to the the substantive areas we've been talking about, I've enjoyed uh, both in other institutions like at Stanford and at the Commonwealth Club, uh, the assistance that the foundation has provided to create spaces in which important activities can take place and to thank you for that focus as well. Um, so I want to uh, ask you a last question on behalf of the audience uh, for each and any of you. Um, what message of hope can you share with all of us during the st the stressful time of the pandemic and other uh, pressures that we feel? Well, I guess I, I don't mean to, to, you know, have my answer sound insignificant, but I think hopefully people listening to people like Aaron and people like Joya, that's the hope. It's there are people that are very committed, that are smart that understand the role of philanthropy and the intersection of philanthropic dollars with public dollars that help me believe that there is a great future ahead. And I will tell you without exception, our staff, which is now 33 people, have stayed, everyone has stayed till the end. Uh, there's been a lot of recruitment going on and people have, have passed up some, I think, great opportunities to help us finish our work. And it is that commitment, that passion, that intellect that give me hope every day. And I also think that, you know, we've reached a point in this country where we kind of got down in the dirt a lot. And I think there's only upward that we can go. So I have great hope. Um, there are people with energy and, and, and strong ethics that are going to help us move forward. But I I look to our staff, quite honestly, to sort of say this is an example of, of why I believe that there's great opportunity out there and great hope and faith. Thank you, Lord. Uh, Joya, Aaron? I would just offer, when, when I try to cheer myself up when it's been dark, I, I remind me myself of some of the site visits we've had in the far-flung parts of California, Imperial County, or up there in Shasta, or in the in the Great Central Valley in Butte County, we've we've visited educators and students all over the place. And what I've learned in doing that is you have these committed, passionate, dedicated educators and leaders in every community in the state that are trying to solve problems. So it's not so much the issue that we've got to solve all the problems all at once, but we've got to support the people on the ground who are looking to do it. And uh, and they can. Uh, if we if we have the optimism and the will to invest in them. And I think that's true in education. And I think it's true for other issues, too. Uh, they're there. And some of them are listening, I hope. And so thank, thanks to them for doing what they do. Yeah. Um, 
I'm still, I'm, you know, I, wanting to provide something profound, but I think, uh, you know, when I think about, about this year and where we are is um, this is a moment where we sort of individually and collectively need to dig deep. There, there's, there's sort of a, a reckoning that 2020 has brought for us um, that I think will make us stronger. I think, I think it's things that have been sort of um, easier to gloss over or things that weren't as visible or things that, um, uh, you know, whether it's, it's, it's the pandemic, it's uh, sort of the, the reckoning that we're having around um, systemic racism. Th these are the things that we need to dig deep. Um, and, and I think that we will be better for it even if it's if even if it's painful and hard in these moments so it's um that that gives me it sounds not an incredibly a happy note but it, it but it does give me hope well thank you um we are at the end of our time this has been a wonderful conversation uh, I want to thank you for that, but I also want to thank Lori and your parents and your family for your long history of leadership and philanthropy and all that you've accomplished. Joya and Aaron, uh, for your role in that, all of those accomplishments and wishing you all the best in your next uh next acts after the foundation sunsets. Thank you in particular, uh, as Lori talked about for creating a, so, a generation of young people contributing to their strength and resourcefulness and knowledge to, in fact, help us move out of this difficult time we've been on uh, in and to solve the problems ahead of us. So a big thanks to all of you uh, for your contributions, for the Foundation's contributions, and congratulations once again for your Distinguished Citizens Award from the Commonwealth Club. And, and, and thank you, Gloria, to you and the club for this incredible honor. This is very special and something that we will carry in our hearts for a very long time. So thank you. We are honored and uh, delighted to present it. For our audience, our thanks uh, once again and congratulations to Lori Dax, Joya Banerjee, and Aaron Hiron of the Stephen D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. Thank you to our viewing audience uh, that's here with us. Uh, a reminder that the final award presentation of our 2020 uh, Distinguished Citizen Awards will honor Dr. Matthew State, John Pritzker, and UCSF, uh, and we will do that in early 2021. I'm Gloria Duffy. Now, this program of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. Thank you, and please stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.